Dr. Lauren Abrey is Director of Clinical Trials in Brain Tumors at Memorial Sloan Kettering. I met with her for another perspective on current directions in clinical research, and she began our conversation by providing an overview of the Memorial Program. We run a number of glioma clinical trials, some of which come out of our institution, some are industry-sponsored, and a number come through the Brain Tumor Consortium around the country. And in particular, one of the areas we're interested in looking at is Avastin in combination with radiation. So we've just completed a re-irradiation study where we gave Avastin for a month to patients with recurrent malignant gliomas. And then after the one-month mark, we got a new scan, but also at that time gave them five-fraction IMRT to their tumor and continued the Avastin through that and afterward. And our preliminary results look good, but it is also a very selected group of patients because to give re-irradiation, you have to have a tumor that has a diameter that's less than about three and a half centimeters. So it's probably a similarly selected population to some of the early reports where people use stereotactic radiation as salvage therapy for malignant gliomas, or maybe some of the data for reoperation on small tumors that were early. So what we're actually doing now is we're going to move that to an upfront trial of a vast and hypofractionated radiation and concurrent temidar for a small group of patients. But again, it will have the same limit, that it'll be a pretty select group of patients. It's a really interesting question, though, about the issue of bevacizumab and radiation. I can think about rectal cancer, where you have the work that was done in Boston looking at bevacizumab and patients are getting radiation therapy. There's been discussion I've heard in non-small cell about radiation therapy and stage three disease and a question there about, you know, whether it's going to be safe. And I guess the whole issue of, you know, how does bevacizumab affect the vasculature and how does that affect the way radiation works? I mean, as a non-radiation oncologist, you would think there's some connection, but how have you been able to put it together? So the group at Memorials, V. Fuchs, who used to be the chair of radiation oncology with some of his laboratory colleagues, have shown that targeting the VEGF in the endothelium will sensitize it potentially to the damage from radiation, which could be a good thing, at least in the short run. I suppose it could lead to some long-term complications. I think the other issue that might come with the vascular normalization, if we can take these tumors that were particularly hypoxic, and make them a little bit less hypoxic, would they be a little less radio-resistant as a result? And some of those things could be really important. Again, it's kind of a nice hypothesis and works nicely in the laboratory, and what it will end up doing when you treat patients could be a totally different story. Did you do any imaging studies or flow studies or anything in your patients that sort of give clues about what might be going on? We did some very basic perfusion studies, and we're able to show that perfusion and measures of vascular permeability also, so kind of a mixed picture. So they both decreased during the Avastin treatment, and they tended to stay down over the course of follow-up while patients were doing well. It wasn't quite as complicated an algorithm as the Mass General Group showed with their Resentin study, but I think nice proof of principle. And we were particularly worried in the retreatment group that we might be increasing the risk of bleeding because large dose per fraction but small number of fraction radiation can lead to increased bleeding. could also lead to increased rates of radiation necrosis, and so far we haven't seen any, and just about everybody on that study has about a year of follow-up under their belt right now. 
seems like in so many tumors right now, the EGFR pathway is out on the table, and I see it's also out on the table in terms of malignant gliomas and also the issue about EGFR, TKIs, and you've published on that. Can you kind of bring us up to date on what we know about that? Well, so I think that was an area where everybody was really excited and thought that this might be a major answer for gliomas. And I think what has happened is that the molecular heterogeneity in these tumors has made it much more complicated. So clearly, just targeting EGFR doesn't seem to help most patients most of the time or even kind of a predictable subset of patients. There is the data that has come out of the UCLA's group suggesting if you have EGFR V3 loss and P10 is also lost, that that group might be particularly sensitive. But that was a tiny group of patients and hasn't been well recapitulated by a prospective study. So the question is going to be, do we need to hit two different targets in the cell or maybe even more than two different targets? And I don't think it's going to be quite as simple as EGFR. So... That's kind of a simplistic way of thinking about it. What do we know about the key pathways involved in malignant glioma, the biology of the disease, the genomics involved the disease at this point? I think we've got lots of bits of information, but not much that puts it all together. And again, that's kind of a very big picture overview. I think P10 is probably very important. The AKT pathway is probably very important some mixed data on how important some things like RAS and RAF might be and how often they're likely to actually be mutated or involved in gliomas. PDGF seems to be particularly abnormal in patients who have an oligodendroglial phenotype, a little less clear how important it is in gliomas. And I think what we haven't done is kind of unlock like the non-small cell lung story where you can say, you know, this particular genetic subtype is very susceptible to this treatment. We don't have a genetic signature that's come out in gliomas at this time point. So it's a lot of work left to be done there, I think. Let's talk a little bit about primary CNS lymphomas. Can you kind of provide an overview of that? Primary CNS lymphoma, very rare primary brain tumor. So probably three to 5% of brain tumors, probably less than 5% of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Very chemosensitive, very radiosensitive. Most patients are treated with methotrexate either alone or in combination with other chemotherapy. And I think the best results have been methotrexate-based chemotherapy followed by radiation. But the flip to that is that that particular combination is quite neurotoxic and particularly neurotoxic in older adults, which is important because the average age for this tumor is 60 to 65, so most people with the tumor are older. So probably the most interesting thing that is happening, I think, in CNS lymphoma has been, can we use rituxan effectively in this tumor type, similar to the way you use rituxan for systemic lymphomas? And I think we can use it safely, I think part of the trouble is that it's a hard thing to prove how much it adds because about 80% of patients have a very good response to methotrexate alone. So adding rituxan to methotrexate, it's hard to improve the response rate in small numbers of patients to convince yourself. So the question might be looking at survival in a population of patients, and there are now several studies ongoing that have rituxan as part of the initial mix. So that could be important. We have just published some data showing that if you can get patients into a radiographic remission with a rituxan-methotrexate combination, you might be able to use a much lower dose of radiation very effectively. 
and we haven't seen cognitive toxicity with a low dose of radiation. So we're kind of using a dose that is similar to what you might give a site of systemic lymphoma that required radiation. So we gave 2,400 centigrade instead of 4,500 centigrade. So there might be ways to modulate the radiation down and still kind of retain its benefit but get rid of its toxicity. What are some of the common questions that you receive from docs in practice about management of malignant gliomas? One of the kind of silly but simple and maybe important things is this concept of giving temidar during radiation. It's amazing the number of people who either assume that the temidar is like the radiation and doesn't work on the weekend, so they skip Saturday and Sunday, or they give the standard monthly schedule, which is not the typical combination. So the combination is to give 75 milligrams per meter squared daily for the full six weeks of radiation from the day they start radiation till their last day. That was a big issue when the whole concept first started a couple of years ago. I think it seems a whole lot cleaner right now, but you still kind of get some strange schedules of Temidor. And again, that's it's in part the practice that you, you know, there have been a number of published schedules that you can use for Temidar. So there's a lot of information out there. Easy to see how you'd get off onto an alternate schedule and not clear that it helps anyone. You might just be able to prescribe a whole lot more Temidar and spend a lot more money doing it. And I don't know that you're helping patients with that. The addition of Avastin has generated a lot of questions. And I think a lot of people think it's exciting enough that you should perhaps just jump in and start it as part of the initial treatment and add it to temidar and radiation. I would say that what I'm hearing is that you do have a significant potential risk for the surgical site to open up and to have some wound dehiscence in that situation. And actually that the UCLA group with their preliminary report showed a lot of myelosuppression when they did that. So temidar and radiation together usually doesn't give you much myelosuppression. It occasionally drops platelet counts in a way that can be difficult to manage or that you have to put the temidar on hold. But if you add Avastin, it was surprising to see how often they had grade 3 and 4 myelosuppression that was difficult to manage. So I don't know that we should rush ahead or that the best answer is to throw the kitchen sink at patients. It might make sense to play the hand out a little slower than that. You mentioned the issue of wound healing, and what we've heard in a lot of tumors is the practice is using a six-week window between surgery and the use of bevacizumab. Is that your approach, and do you think that takes care of the issue? I think it's important to have a good window on the time from surgery to starting Avastin. One of the places that we can sometimes get in trouble is you have someone on Avastin who we might normally consider for reoperation at time of tumor progression. And it's not clear what the risk is in that group of patients because, again, often you don't have the luxury of waiting six weeks to decide to operate on the brain tumor. If you think you're doing it to help someone neurologically, but they got Avastin two weeks ago, we've been trying to wait at least three to four weeks. But I think they're potentially at an increased risk of hemorrhage if you operate early. Anything new in terms of imaging of malignant gliomas? I think that imaging is actually also a very hot topic right now for malignant gliomas for two reasons. There's an issue of pseudoprogression and pseudo-response. So the pseudoprogression issue has really come when looking at patients who've gotten temozolomide and radiation and saying that often that first scan you get after radiation looks worse, but that's not necessarily a sign that the tumor's worse. And if you just sit tight, it will often settle down if you just continue them on single-agent temozolomide. 
Some thought that maybe perfusion MRI is the best way to tease that apart, but it really hasn't been well even defined yet so that everybody who's reporting pseudoprogression knows that we're all talking about the same thing. I think the flip is that we get this issue of kind of pseudo-response with Avastin sometimes, so that what you can get is a loss of the contrast enhancement, but no real change in the mass. And that's probably just that you've shut down the blood-brain barrier with Avastin. I don't think that's all of the patients. You definitely see patients where the tumor bulk goes away and the contrast goes away, and I think those patients are having a real response but I think you have a group of patients who on VEGF therapy, their scan looks a bit better from conventional kind of response criteria, but really the bulk of tumor is still very much there. So those are probably the biggest issues. So the thought is that perfusion types of imaging, which is kind of the same as dynamic contrast enhanced MRI. I think perfusion is kind of the brain analogy to dynamic contrast enhance is really just picking up the images as you're giving a very rapid bolus of contrast to see where the bolus is distributed rapidly. I'm hopeful that some of that will sort out some of these questions, but it probably won't sort out all of them. A lot of interest in developing new pet techniques for looking at brain better, but again, a lot of controversy there about which ones really give us the most meaningful information. So I don't typically use PET unless I've got a very specific question that I think PET will answer, like do I think it's radiation necrosis or tumor, and I can get hopefully a fairly dichotomous answer. Otherwise, I don't find PET particularly useful. Radiation necrosis in the bone? No, actually, more common after you've given something like radiosurgery to a brain metastasis. Occasionally, a glioma that has looked good on follow-up imaging, and suddenly you have kind of a funny pattern of enhancement, You can get radiation necrosis in patients who've lived for, let's say, at least six months, but often it's at the one- or two-year mark. So this is in the tumor, in the normal brain? In the tumor. In the tumor. Or in the normal brain kind of surrounding the tumor bed. Probably most common in brain metastasis. What are some of the supportive care issues and management of patients with malignant gliomas that you pay particular attention to? The big alternate complication that brain tumor, and particularly glioma patients, are at risk for is DVT. So I think that's a major issue and a point where patients aren't always managed in the best way. So I think so long as they are at least a week out from their surgery, and some surgeons will ask for a month, they can be safely anticoagulated. And that's probably better than putting a filter in most patients. So that's a major complication that we see in, I'm going to make it up, but more than 10% of patients, I would think. I think end-of-life issues are difficult because often the difference for glioma patients is that many of them develop cognitive impairment because of their tumor or because of their treatment. And so their ability to participate in some of the decisions is limited. And so often you're left with the family having to make the decisions unless you've made decisions for them early. And it's a hard thing to have to talk about just as soon as someone gets diagnosed and they want to focus on getting the best possible treatment. So it's kind of a, I don't know that I have a particular route for dealing with it. I think you kind of deal with it patient by patient. The other things that can be very important are kind of seizure management and steroid management. So there's no evidence that putting patients on seizure medicines to prevent seizures is of any value. Clearly, when patients have had a seizure, they need seizure medicines. And Increasingly, most of us are using Keppra 
as the first choice, mostly because Dilantin and the others will interact with many of the new medicines and or prevent patients from participating on clinical trials. So anything that's a CYP3A4 inducer will keep you off of a number of clinical trials with new agents at the moment. And many patients end up on long-term steroid use, which comes with, as you know, kind of a huge host of complications. But often it's a double-edged sword. You need it because it's so valuable for making them neurologically well that you pay the price in terms of developing diabetes or making the hypertension worse, developing skin breakdown. What do you think is happening in the community in terms of management of these patients, and how are neurologists and oncologists interacting? It's a little hard for me to get a great picture of what's going on in the community, although I'm always impressed at how much community oncologists know about the recent research, and I have really kept up to date on a lot of these issues when you think that brain tumors are really, really rare. So there are, you know, whatever, fifteen to 20,000 this year in the country, certainly not their bread and butter to bother to keep up with, and yet I think they do a really fantastic job. I'm a little discouraged. I've actually done some work with our epidemiologist pulling out SEER Medicare data, and some of the data for both gliomas and CNS lymphoma would suggest we've made very little dent in average survival, at least in the 65 and older group, despite some of what we think are real advances in therapy in the last decade or so, and we're trying to figure out, is there a better way to address that? I think most community neurologists don't get particularly involved with brain tumor patients. They may be involved in seizure management, symptom management, but I would guess in the community it is largely the neurosurgeons, radiation oncologists, and increasingly medical oncologists who have gotten involved with their care. But again, that's kind of out of, I'm not in that quite zone, so I'm making it up a little bit. What do we know about the quality of neurosurgery that's done in this country for this disease? I think the quality of neurosurgery is really pretty fantastic. The question is, I don't think that this will ever become a surgical disease. So they have developed all sorts of cool new technical bells and whistles. Probably the most important thing there is it allows them to do pretty aggressive surgery more safely than in the past. But I think no matter how aggressive their surgery is, they're not going to fix these tumors. So it may just be that we don't hurt the patient, and that's a really valuable thing because then the patient's well enough to get additional therapy. So that's fantastic.